so you guys know as uh, as as you've been coming, you know, in previous the last few Sundays, we've been in the middle of this series called Devoted, and the series is uh, rooted in this verse in Acts two four two, where we're told that the first church, full of the Holy Spirit, was continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And and our first message was focusing on that. Uh, category of the apostles' teaching, that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And then we moved on last week to the, the devotion to prayer. And of course, as I said, all these things are intermingled. I mean, they're they're devoted to fellowship around the apostles' teaching. They're praying sourced in the apostles' teaching. That was the big part last week. Uh, breaking bread includes communion that's founded on the apostles' teaching. So all these things interweave together. But it, but it from on the front end of this message, we've been focusing on each individual component in Acts 242, whether it's apostles' teaching or prayer or fellowship or the breaking of bread. And and this Sunday, before we decided to to move to a virtual setup, the plan was to focus on fellowship and and this idea of coming together around Jesus and meeting together around Jesus and and we were going to move to Hebrews 10 and the, the verse about not neglecting meeting together. And, and at first I thought, you know, is this the wrong passage for this Sunday that we decide for the first time in our church's history to do this, to not meet together physically? Um, I, you know, it, it's pretty ironic. Uh, I, I thought maybe we should preach about the virus and fear and, and what we need to be prepared to say to, our, to ourselves, to our own hearts, to one another, to our neighbors. Should I focus on explaining better uh, why we're not meeting at the building? But as I thought about it, uh, and as I, I sense the Lord speaking to my heart, I, I think as best I can discern, this is actually a really, really important time to talk about fellowship. And this might be hyperbolic, but I feel like I can't imagine actually, as I think through it, like a more important time to talk about fellowship. Uh, and, and I hope that becomes clear as I, as I explain. Like right now, um, for, for good reasons, for wisdom reasons we pray, we're being encouraged to physically distance ourselves from groups and to be cautious about every physical interaction. You know, you guys have heard the probably the rule on no touching, uh, keep six feet away from each other. When I went to Matthew's to pick up Matthew, Marie, and John at school a couple of days ago, I was talking to the principal about the closing and as we were talking and sharing, she suddenly realized, I'm not supposed to be this close to you. And so she pulled way back and she said, six feet, six feet, right? And we, you know, we kind of laughed and we kind of said, yeah, yeah, six feet. Okay. Um, and, and some of this stuff, it, it might seem silly, you know, in Maryland to be this way. Uh, but if we were in Italy or we were in Spain, we'd hear folks telling us that they had wished that they had social distanced themselves uh, before they thought they needed it. So I think it's good that we try to do our part to help our city this way. And, and you can read my note that I sent to the church. It's also on Facebook if you want to know more about why. Um, but but social distancing, this, this project we're in, it, it also has uh, its costs. First, there's just the backdrop that we're all aware of. As Jesse prayed, as Kim prayed, the, the whole world is as we prayed for Jesse rather, the whole, the whole world is caught up in stopping this virus that can potentially kill tens of millions of people, um, especially the older folks. The older you get, the scarier it is potentially for you. The stock market is tanking. Retirement funds have been shrinking. Uh, reports from other nations are frightening. As I mentioned, Italy and Spain and France um, it can feel like we're in the first part of a movie about the apocalypse, except this isn't a movie. And closer to home for each of us is not just, it's not just about not being able to see each other as much, and that's just kind of a simple thing. There's a real cost to that. God made us physical creatures. He made us for smiles and touches and embraces. He made us to look into each other's eyes and, and hear each other's voices. We're not meant to know each other primarily across texts, even across screens. And, and from this, I think that loneliness is going to be easier right now. Discouragement and depression is going to be easier. For folks who are already struggling with depression, I think it's going to be easier to struggle. Um, 
conversations are going to be harder to have when people can't see each other and hear each other. And, and you know, sometimes we, we don't even realize how much there is about sitting down with somebody and, and seeing them face to face until we finally have that opportunity to unburden our soul, you know, brother to sister and, and find out um, that we can actually open our hearts to someone and they give their response back of blessing, of encouragement, of warmth. And I, I'm seeing my face come in and out of the light here. So I'm, I'm sorry about that. But my point is that, that we're meant to be, uh, you know, in the, in the, in the, story of Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane, he is praying um, with great, great strength, with great vigor. It says he was sweating drops of blood. He was praying with incredible zeal. I think the actual Greek word is the same word as our English word for zeal. He was in such distress. And so his prayer was was extremely, excruciatingly forceful. And, and in the midst of that sorrow and grief for what he was about to go through, the Lord tells us that God did two things. He told us he 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 has to go through this, that there is no cup to be passed from him. But then it says that angels came and minister him, and he was encouraged by that. And, and, and I think there's a sense in which that's what the church is called to be to each other. You know, we're called to be ministers of encouragement to each other, strengthening each other in the battle. And so this, this whole social isolation thing, it's going to have costs to that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to make it awkward. It's going to make it harder for us to do that. Um, and there, there's another sense in which like social isolation is, is costly potentially. It's, it, it, there, there's this aspect in which we can actually like isolation too much. Uh, we like not having to deal with other people because it can be hard to deal with other people. Um, and so in some senses, not only is social, social isolation bad because it can make us feel lonely and depressed, but, but in other cases, it can kind of engorge bad attitudes and habits and patterns about being alone. We, we like not having to deal with other people because other people can be hard to deal with. Like what, what dad or mom among us hasn't wished at some point, they didn't see what their child was doing because now they have to correct their child. <laughs> Um, I mean, I've experienced that, you know, there've been moments where William's doing something or Marie's doing something. And I'm just like, ah, I'm just tired. I'm wiped out. I just wish I didn't see that because now I have to get up and interact and, and work with them. Um, wh what husband or wife hasn't at times wished they didn't have to deal with the anger coming at them or the anxiety that's coming at them from their spouse. And they could just like transport themselves to the dark side of the moon and, and shut themselves off in isolation. And, and what believer in Jesus Christ has not sinned in secret and been glad that no one knows and no one sees? Um, what believer hasn't been veering towards compromise and felt both glad and a sense of unease because other people didn't know their heart? They were able to isolate. So isolation, you know, it, it can be good. It can be needed. There are breaks and times of rest that we need but it can also be really bad for us. And, and that's where I want to go to in, in Hebrews 10. There was a kind of isolation that was bad for the church in the book of Hebrews that some were experiencing. So, so please turn there to me and, uh, and we'll look at Hebrews 10 and what we're going to, we're going to head to Hebrews 10 verses, um, verses 23 ish. But, but before you go there, I just want to, I want to paint the backdrop of what's going on in, in Hebrews. The author in Hebrews 10 be, begins by explaining to this church the incredible promise and gift of Jesus Christ that they have. And, and I think the way he articulates it in, in Hebrews 10, for, for my heart, and, and I think arguably, there, there's no better, more hopeful, more like despair smashing promise. It, it's just the most incredible way that he communicates what Christ has done for us and what Christ is for us in the first part of this chapter. And if you go to Hebrews 12, I'm sorry, Hebrews 10, verse 12, that's Hebrews 10, verse 12, we see him telling us this. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified or those who are being made holy. This is really the climax of everything he's been saying about Jesus Christ. Verse 14, by one offering, he has made perfect for all time in regards to our sin debt to God. He has made perfect for all time everyone who is being sanctified, everyone who is being made holy by him. Then he tells them that by this one for all time sacrifice that takes care of all of their sins from birth till death, that's enough and sufficient for every transgression against God and, and presents them before God perfect and blameless and righteous because of Jesus, not because of their performance. After telling them that, he tells them that they're members of the new covenant. That's where he goes after 14. He quotes Jeremiah, the promise of the Holy Spirit, who writes God's law on our hearts. God has made us new, he's telling them. He's brought us into a new covenant, a new covenant in which we no longer simply try to follow God with our own resources and and laws written on stone tablets. Now God has come into our hearts. He's made us new creatures. He's given us a love for him and a love for righteousness and a love for one another that's now the power source of being able to follow him. It's just some of the most incredible promises in scripture spoken with boldness and clarity and no apology. And then from all that, he commands in starting in verse 19, this great encouragement. He says, therefore, brothers, and he means sisters, it's generic. Uh, He says, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Without going into perfect detail here, he's basically saying, he's repeating different themes he's brought in, in, in past chapters, and he's saying, listen, church, let's make use of this incredible sacrifice, which has made us members of God's family. Let's always be running to our Father through his Son, our great high priest Jesus sympathizes with all our weaknesses. It's where he, what he promised in Hebrews 4. He's ready to meet us with understanding, compassion in our trials with sin, not judgment and condemnation. He's ready to give us the grace and mercy we need to keep walking with him. So let's just be always going to him. Let's just be always appealing to him. Let's lay our sins down before this great sacrifice, he says having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. There's there's cleansing in the blood of Jesus again and again when we're first saved and as we keep struggling against sin and sometimes we fail, we keep coming to the Lord and he keeps again and again cleaning us off and lifting us up. He says, let's keep going. And then in verse 23, he says, let's hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Many times we've talked about the fact that we receive power from the Holy Spirit as we keep holding on to the truth of Jesus Christ, of what he's done for us in the gospel. So he's saying, let's keep clinging to the truth about Jesus. Let's hold tightly to the promises of his grace and mercy, to the promises that he'll provide a way out, the promises that he'll always be with us in every trial, to the promises for strength from him that's ours for the asking to keep walking with him. Let's keep holding on to that truth. And through holding on to that truth, he's trying to point out God keeps us close. He sustains our spiritual life. Now, now at this point, I want to skip over the two verses that I really want to focus on today for the, for the rest of the message. I want to skip over those verses that come next, verses 24 and 25, and I'll come back to them. But I want to do this because I want you to see what verse 24 and 25 are in the middle of. So that by skipping over them now, we'll get to move to the other side and see this continuing thought that they're kind of sandwiched in. So go to verse 26. And here's what he says. 
notice the great change in tone here. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. And here he's saying, if we go on sinning deliberately, and now the author is concerned about us essentially turning from a life, not, not of perfection, because he knows none of us is perfect, but turn from a life of fighting to keep coming to God, fighting to keep holding on to the promises of Jesus in the gospel, fighting to keep holding on to the truth of God's word. And instead, we just essentially would set that aside and from there move into a deliberate, conscious state of sinning willfully, on purpose, habitually, on and on. The Greek word there represents, if we go on deliberately sinning, it represents intentional, habitual rejection of Christ. This isn't isolated sinning. It's not a season even of backsliding that ends with repentance. It's really, it's really that season of backsliding becoming, if not fought, if not battled with, becoming a steady state condition of our hearts against God. He's really talking about apostasy. And so we, we, we go on in verse 28 to this continued warning. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much more, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We could spend many weeks on these passages, but but I want to try to sum up again what he's trying to say here for the sake of coming back to these verses in 24 and 25. Basically, he's just saying, for the kind of person who's heard the gospel well and has outwardly professed devotion of Jesus, there's nothing left to offer them if they turn from that. He says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. In other words, if they've rejected Jesus after having understood him and seen his power in the family of faith even, there's nothing else God can offer them. There's, There's no greater option than Jesus to offer. There's no upgrade seating to first class from Jesus. He's the top of the options God has. And, and if we reject him, we've rejected all that God has to offer. If we walk away from Jesus, we've walked away from the very apex of what God has to offer man in redemption. The Apostle Peter says in another place in one of his letters that, that for such a person, it would be better if they'd never heard the truth at all than to have heard it and, then, and seemingly embraced it and then to have walked away. God will not deal with them lightly in any in any way. We we can't really find a more sobering, grave passage in Scripture than this. But I'm really bringing this this whole picture to you because I want to come back to verse 24, 25, with by seeing this larger context it's in. Right on on one side of verses 24 and 25 is this incredible promise of gospel hope. Of, of praying with confidence and boldness in God's presence because of Jesus, of living a life of constantly depending on him and coming to him for the incredible grace and mercy and kindness and compassion he has to us through our great high priest, of confessing our sins to him and being washed, of holding on to the truth, truth about Jesus with the grip of our heart, of putting our hope above all, not in our performance, but in Jesus and his sacrifice. Incredible grace, incredible hope. And then on the other side of that is this incredible warning about this either fast or slow slide into apostasy, getting to a place where we walk away from Jesus for good. And I think ultimately showing ourselves to be lost to eternal damnation. So these passages, they couldn't be more serious. It's the greatest promise, the greatest hope, and the greatest warning the greatest sobering um, admonition. And and so I want us to recognize that's what surrounds verse 24 and 25. Like 
Because I, I think only in the context of, of what we see before 24 and what we see after 25 can we see the value and the urgency and the seriousness with which the Holy Spirit wants us to see these verses, which can otherwise feel kind of mundane and normal. Let's look at the verses now. Verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So I want to repeat this. Right in the middle of this incredible, sobering, prom incredible, gracious promise and sobering call meant to... to to keep us devoted to Jesus with the most incredible grace and the most serious warning right in the middle laid before them is this verse about fellowship, about being together. And it's it's not what I would expect. I don't know if it's what you would expect, but it's not what I would expect. I, I would not expect verses 24 and 25 to be about being together, encouraging each other, exhorting each other. I, I would expect to see in light of the incredible grace promised, in light of the incredibly sobering warning, I would expect to see verses about sacrificial love and fasting and study, uh, to commandments to abstain from specific sins of pride and immorality. Maybe I'd see something about fleeing divisiveness, but but I would not expect this kind of normal call. You know, let's let's keep meeting together, <laughs> it, not in this most sobering place. But that's what's here between heaven before verse 24 and hell after verse 25 are these simple, sweet, almost, I mean, you, you could be tempted to think they're run-of-the-mill passages about encouragement, about being together, about not neglecting meeting together. But that's what's here. Here's what's true and real and saving about Christianity. It, it, it looks like being together. It looks like encouraging one another about Jesus. It looks like trying to help each other love one another. Yes, yes, everything that comes before 24, it looks like faith in the truth. It looks like fighting with promises. It looks like confession and running to God's throne, absolutely. It looks like keeping in mind the reality of hell and judgment that's coming, that God does not want us to to forget, but but right in the middle, it, it looks like coming to church on Sunday and showing up. It looks like singing together and praying together and prophesying and preaching and encouraging. It, it looks like care group and, and sharing our burdens there and meeting for coffee one-on-one -on -one to do a Bible study or, or maybe meeting at Donna's to do a Bible study or maybe doing what Deb did a few months ago, hosting a class from CCEF, it, it looks like prayer meetings where, where we just meet together and, and, and pray for each other and bring, we hope, our words from the Lord to each other for encouragement and support. It looks like Samson Society where, where hearts are unveiled and unburdened and hearts are humbled to hear one another. It looks like all kinds of discipleship relationships, formal and informal, where God's truth and our lives lead us to going to Jesus together in prayer for help and for comfort. So I, I want to come back and just, just ask, do you understand, after all I've said, what this, this little passage, 24 and 25, and, and the verses that surround it are, are doing? By, by putting these verses on fellowship in 24 and 25, where he does... These, these little verses on being with each other, to care for each other, to watch over each other, to wash one another with the word, to encourage, to exhort, to not stop meeting with each other, to, to put them right in the middle of, of the non-dispensable truths and promises of Jesus as our perfection, as our great high priest, and the impossible to ignore warnings of apostasy. He is trying to elevate the value of fellowship and the need for it and the importance of it and help us to see that the weight of it. And my big appeal this morning is even in the midst of this social isolation project that we're going through, God is calling us in bold relief 
to see our need to be in each other's lives, even in the midst of this huge project of social isolation, which I, I think has all kinds of prudence and wisdom to it. God is calling us in bold relief to push into each other, to push into relationship, to not isolate ourselves from each other spiritually, even if we have to do it physically for a season. However it looks, care group, one-on-one, -on -one, church on Sunday, Samson Society, Bible study, prayer meetings, whether it, whether it can be face-to-face -face because we feel like it's it's a wise enough thing to, to meet and we don't have to worry because we're not meeting in groups of 100, you know, or, or it's screen, phone-to-phone -phone like this, like we're learning about how to do today. It, it's, it's crucial, the author is saying. It's not an option for us to not be with each other. It's not an option for us to not care for one another spiritually. It's not an option. Just like it's not an option in, in the previous verses to forget that Jesus is our high priest. It's not an option to not live by his promises. It's not an option to not believe the gospel of his righteousness for us. We have to believe those incredible promises. It's not an option, he says in verse 26 and onward, to ignore these warnings about apostasy and to recognize there's nothing God has to offer after Jesus. So too, he's saying it's not an option to fail to encourage one another. It's not an option to neglect each other. It's not an option to stop meeting, whether physically or virtually. See, God is committed to use us in each other's lives. He is just committed to do that. He, he is not going to bypass that. He is committed to make us dependent on him. Listen, to, he's committed to make us dependent on him, not just directly, like prayer closet to God, but also he's committed to make us dependent on him through each other, dependent on him through each other. We need each other because he has sovereignly ordained that he will only work in certain ways through our love for each other. He's not going to work in other ways. He will not only simply work with us in spiritual isolation. The successful spiritual life is not in the desert with St. Anthony for years and years and years on end. And maybe in rare cases, God calls people to do that. But, but you won't find that in scripture being encouraged to us at all. And, and why, why has God ordained this? Why has God ordained that he's not going to simply work vertically with us? He's going to work horizontally through us to each other. Well, one answer is that our love for one another is central to his plan in redemption to glorify himself as his, in, in us by making us his perfect image bearers. Let me say that again. One answer for, for why he wants fellowship is that it is part of his plan and redemption to glorify himself, to show who he is in us by causing us to become his perfect image bearers. Okay, and follow me here. I'm going to try to explain this. God created us originally in his image. That was the first thing he says about man in Genesis, man and woman. He says, let us create man in our image. Here's what I want to do with man that's different than I'm going to do with every other piece of creation I've made. Different than every animal, every planet, every moon, every sunset, every mountain, every ocean. Man is going to be unique. I'm going to make him and her in, in our image, in my image, God says in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And then sin comes and perverts that image. But what does Romans 8 tell us he's doing? Romans 8 tells us he's working everything in the universe. It says he works all things for good. And if you follow the thought in Romans 8, he's working all things for good for those who love God to conform us back to the image of God. That's what redemption is all about. It's all about God glorifying himself by redeeming us back to become his perfect image bearers, those who show each other and the universe and the world the greatest thing there is to show, who God is. That's the dignity that he meant to confer upon men and women, the dignity that sin seeks to destroy and the dignity that redemption seeks to accomplish, conforming us again perfectly 
to the image of God. And now I want to ask you, what's that image? What is the image of God? God created us in his image. Sin comes and perverts that image. But he's working all things to conform us back to that image. And what's at the very core of that image? The very core of the image of God at its very core is a relationship of love. It's a relationship of love. God has existed throughout all eternity. Father, Son, and Spirit. A relationship of mutual love and dependence. Father, Son, Spirit for all eternity. A relationship of mutual love and dependence. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father and and, and vice versa. And they depend on each other to do things. We see it even in the miracle of of redemption. They depend on each other throughout scriptures to do different things or emphasized in different ways. But they're one. They're one together in purpose and in worth. One God and three persons. But it's this relationship that is our God. Mutual love and dependence. And so as his image bearers, as his church, as his bride being called back to that image... We're being called back to an image of mutual love and dependence with each other. You see how it's impossible for God to to project his image through one person, isolated? He can only project his image through the human family coming together, mutual love and dependence with each other. That's what he's up to doing in the church. There's a song that I, I, I love I haven't listened to it in a long time, but uh, it's a song by U2 uh, from like 2004. And it's called Sometimes You Can't Make It On Your Own. And it's about the singer's father. It's about Bono's father. He's dying of cancer in the song. And his son is appealing to him as reflecting on their life together. And he's appealing to him. And he sings these lyrics. He says, tough. You think you've got the stuff. You're telling me in anyone you're hard enough. You're a tough man. My whole life I've known it. You think you've got the stuff. You're telling me in everyone you're hard enough. You can do it on your own. You don't need any help. And at the end, he sings, sometimes you can't make it on your own. Sometimes you can't make it. The best you can do is fake it. Sometimes you can't make it on your own. And he's appealing to his father. Let me in this hard season be here for you. I love the song. It's a beautiful lyric. It's a beautiful melody for me. You might not like it. That's fine. But but it's really, as I thought about this song, it's just, you know, that word sometimes, you know, it's just not going far enough. His dad and his cancer is, is finally in this place where he's being called to see that there are moments, there are times in our life like cancer when you need others. But I just think that that really falls way short of the truth. It's not just sometimes you can't make it on your own. It's if God wrote the song, I think the song would just be, you can't make it on your own. You know, that's it. You can't make it on your own. And God has ordained that. Remember in in, in 1 Corinthians 12, what we hear in these famous appeals from Paul to use the Holy Spirit's gifts with wisdom and love. What's he say? He says, the hand will never be able to say to the foot, I don't need you. The eye can never say to the ear, I don't need you. God has ordained that we will need each other. The one gifted to teach will never be able to say to the one gifted to administration, I know I don't need you. The one gifted to prophesy will never be able to say to the one gifted in gifts of mercy, I can make it on my own. And, and I, would just put, I would just put it to you, like if, if deep in your heart, you really think you can make it on your own spiritually, like if, if you're right now in a place where you're content to be alone spiritually, to be left alone spiritually, I, w- I would just say you're either not truly born again or you're very immature or, or I think, or you're significantly sick spiritually. And and let me say something else about needing one another. It's not just a matter of need. It's a promise of joy. You guys know this. So many of you know this. Maybe all of you know this. I know this so deeply. The richest, deepest, most rugged, longest lasting friendships are those that are forged 
on two people or more who are committed to follow Jesus and help each other from the heart to do so. Many of you are experiencing this right now. You, you've walked through seasons of trial with people that you've had to depend on, and those friendships are unforgettable to you. And some of those friendships will, whether they, they function actively or they don't function actively, they will be in your heart, lobs there for the rest of your lives. There are certain people who, who have been following Jesus with you and for you, who will just be there forever. I, I think that I will never forget my first best care group at Cherrydale Baptist Church in the early 2000s, where we met every week, just four to seven guys. We'd go through Jerry Bridges' gospel of uh, dis uh, his disciplines of grace. We'd read one chapter, and then we would all just confess our stuff and pray for each other. And I, I, those men are just seared to my heart. You know, this week I was texting with two of them. It's been, it's getting to be close to 20 years since we started that group. And I haven't seen those guys in some of them 15 years. Um, but there's, they're still in my heart. I've, I was texting this week with one young man that we, our, our little group of four people, we went and we, we, um, we found this young man in a mental institution. Someone in our church had, um, was a, was a psychologist. They were working at this mental institution and they saw this young man who had gone through, um, schizophrenia and uh, through drug use, he had fallen into schizophrenia and, and she brought us to him and we began to meet with him. Uh, we shared the gospel with him. He came to Christ and slowly over years, he, he, he recovered and he moved out of the institution into our care, into our little small group. We met every, every week with him. And he struggled and to this day, he still struggles, but, but he doesn't struggle like he did. He doesn't struggle hopelessly. He doesn't struggle alone. Um, and and so, you know, I was texting him with this week. We just got to get together. We just got to talk. That is one of the richest, like happiest things that's ever happened to me in my life. I, I just thank God for, for that man. I thank God for being able to be part of a group that would care for that person. It, it just brings so much richness and gratefulness to my heart. And and I know that that when I cross into heaven, I don't know that there'll be much I'll be more grateful for than the opportunity that we had to draw into this man's life and to him to draw into his life and to see God work through our fellowship into the progress that came out of his life into our lives and the joy that came. So it's not just a matter of needing each other. It's a matter of the joy that is there for us as we push into one another. It's a matter of the fulfillment of God's Holy Spirit in us working and seeing him work to keep us together, to keep us fighting for each other. It's just, it's part of the abundant life that Jesus promised when he said, I came to give you life and give it to the full. He came to also give us life in himself through each other. And we can't experience those, those aspects of life that he wants us to have if we ignore it, if we ignore each other, if we, if we don't push into each other, if we don't watch over each other. Let's go back to the passage. In verse 24, verse 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now let's think about these words. This is fellowship. This is Christian fellowship. The, these words are not about canoe trips or finding common ground in politics or sports or video games or recipes, or homeschooling approaches, that, that can all be fine. God can, can give us those gifts to enjoy, but that's not what fellowship is. He's saying, no, the center of this communion that he's calling us to, that he's calling this church to, is Jesus Christ. Remember again, the context of these verses, what's before and after these verses. Access to God through Jesus Christ, our high priest. Confession of sin and continual cleansing through Jesus Christ. Holding on to the truth of the gospel and all these promises. And then on the other side, fleeing deliberate, willful sin that shows that we're not really Christians and confirms our damnation to hell. He's saying, get away from that. 
He's saying, run to Jesus. And in the midst, we hear this passage, right? So, so we can tell this isn't about canoeing trips. This isn't about microbrewery trips. And I mean, like God uses those things, right? But, but, but he's saying, no, 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 no. I'm talking about considering carefully how we can stir up love in each other, how we can point each other to what is good, how we can help each other not give up, how we can have each other not be bitter at our enemies, but pray for them. Let's be together. Let's not neglect what's so easy to neglect. He's saying, we've seen some people doing this. There are some people, this is their habit. They just, they just don't keep going with us. They just don't keep coming. They, they just, maybe they're here for a little while and they're, they're off on their own. And, you know, we, he's saying, we've seen where that leads. I've seen where it leads. Let's not do that. And then he says, no, the day is drawing near. The day is drawing near. Soon enough, we will go to Jesus or he will come to us. That day is drawing near. This, this race will be over. This window on, on this vapor of a life will close. And we will suddenly find ourselves standing before him in judgment. And so don't we need each other? We must help one another get to him still believing. We must help one each other get to Jesus, still fighting to hope in him and love him. There's nothing more important. There's nothing sweeter to fight for than this. There's nothing more important. There's nothing sweeter to fight for than this, than seeing each other cross the line into Jesus' arms, safe and faithful. There's nothing more important for us as a church than seeing one another across the line into eternity and get there still fighting to be faithful and place each other in Jesus' arms, having finished the race faithfully. There's other things we have to do as a church to evangelize the lost, to care for each other's needs physically and materially, but they're not as important once we're brought into the body of Christ as watching over each other and seeing that we cross the line into Jesus' arms faithful and don't give up the fight. There's nothing more important So now I want to close and just put it to you and put it to myself. Will, Will we help one another stay with and follow Jesus? Will we help one another stay with and follow Jesus? And those who are doing this already, will you keep doing this? It's a place of work. It gets weary. But please know the Father's pleasure in your attempts to love people when it's hard for you to speak the truth with gentleness in Jesus when it would be just be easier to talk about easy things, but, but you've got to bring some truth because you see someone slipping away or, or, or you see someone in despair and you got to try to pick them up again and it can be wearying. And I'm just appealing to you. Would you keep doing that? Would you please know the father's joy and the father's pleasure in your attempts to love when it's hard for you? and to speak the truth of Jesus in gentleness when it would be easier to just talk about easier things or walk away and isolate. And then secondly, to those of you who wonder if maybe the Spirit's saying, are you really doing this as you should? Are you really in the game or are you kind of lukewarm about it? You, you might find yourself right now thinking, you know what, I, I think... I really think about people in this church more in terms of what they can do for me. I, I go in not with the, you know, John Kennedy said, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And maybe you're thinking, you know, if I really think about it, I go into a care group. I go into a meeting. I go into church. I have this general attitude. Not what can I do for my church? What can I do for my family in Christ? My pervasive attitude is what can they do for me? Are they measuring up for me? Are they doing what they need to do for me? Um, I kid you not, that was the brother I was just talking about (laughs) calling me, the young man uh, from many years ago from that care group. I'll call him back after we meet. And, and, and maybe, you know, talking that second group where, where, where we feel like there's, there's a lot of lukewarmness in our approach or there's a battle here, 
maybe a good place to start is is how you look at your marriage, how you look at your family, like how you look at your parenting. Do, do you walk in with functionally like what can my spouse give me? What can my kids give me? What can they give me in terms of obedience or love? And, and you're not asking, what can I bring to them? That, that That's at your forefront. So I just want to ask you, if, if that's you, maybe you need to start at home. Maybe you're neglecting there. But but God won't ask you to stop there. If you, if you move towards that, that's your first place to go, and he'll move you into others in fellowship. But But I'm really asking, would you please prayerfully bring that to the Lord and ask him, Lord, Lord, am I doing all I can to, to encourage, to lift up, to not neglect my brothers and sisters, whether they be at my home or my church, to help them come across the line? And then last, those who are, who are more convinced today that they're really in functional isolation. Like, like, you know, I've thought about these passages and this picture of, of encouragement, of, of watching over each other as long as it is today, of exhorting one another to love and good deeds, of not neglecting one another spiritually. I'm not in the game at all on that. You know, you might come to church sometimes, and when you come, no one really knows you, and, and you're glad about that. And maybe you're glad because you don't, really, you don't really want folks to know you. Like, and maybe you really don't want to know them. It could be because of trauma and suffering you've gone through, and, and, and so you have to deal with that before the Lord. Or sometimes it could be because you're not really in Christ. And, and I just want to appeal to you. One of the signs of really being born again is love for brothers or sisters in Christ. One of the hallmarks of, of really being saved, of really having God's spirit in you, is that you have something inside you that just can't not want fellowship. And, and, and it might have to fight and struggle with aspects of you that doesn't. But if, if you know Jesus Christ, you will have inside you a love for his people. It, you can't have one without the other. And so if functionally you don't really want his people and care about his people, I think that's a really serious thing to consider what's going on there, whether you're saved. And again, I, I've met people who want that, but it's so hard for them because of suffering and trauma they've gone through. And that's a different category. People who are really Christians, but they're just, they're just covered by hurt and, and they can't break past that. So, so that's really, that's really the, the, the main gist of my, of my message today, that, that I'm just appealing to us. Can we help one another? Can we keep pushing into each other to stay with and follow Jesus? In all kinds of different ways that's going to look. Over this next week, I'm going to try to figure out how to talk to you about a challenge that's been in my heart for, for many weeks that takes this into a very practical concrete place. Um, some of you guys have heard me talk about it. It's, it's called the one, truth, one, two, three challenge. I've kind of invented it um, from different things I've studied and read. And it's my attempt to try to help you get connected in, in small discipleship relationships of two to three people who are committed to meet uh, at least one hour every two weeks for, for no more than three months. I, I don't want to go too far into the details about that, but please stay tuned. If you're excited about what I'm talking about, but you don't know quite how to make this work, you want more of it, but you don't know quite what to do, then the information I'm going to be bringing to you over the next week or two is going to really help put some uh, clarity, hopefully, and some concrete possibilities in, in your lap for you to walk out. Um, so I'm working on some basic materials for this. I want to talk more about it, but I don't want to, I don't want to go too far into it because it might look very different for you than some prescription I give you about one, two, three. But, but however it looks, however it looks, my appeal is let's be a church devoted to fellowshipping over our Jesus. Let's be a church devoted to each other around Jesus. Let's help each other hold on to him. Let's help each other stay close to him. Let's, let's love one another. Let's confess our sins to each other. Let's encourage each other. Let's remember what we're about. We're about helping each other get across the finish line faithful to Jesus and not giving up on him. And let's do that through this strange season. Like, I, I'm so glad that we're doing this just because it's practice. You know, you can do, this is a very simple thing. And I think we ought to make sure that this week, one of the things we can do, and maybe Josh Trout, you can help me with this, is, is making sure everybody knows how to do what we're doing today whether it's with, you know, 40 people or it's just two people that we have this great opportunity through technology to not forsake gathering together. 
I think this is what we're going to do for Tuesday prayer if we don't meet at the church. We're just going to do it just like we're doing it right now. However it must look, though, let's do it. Let's be a church that's not content to let people drift in loneliness or in willful isolation. Because I, I, I believe there is such a rich reward for us in this. I really think this is part of what God has been trying to say to our church, you know, earlier in the year, this idea of, of let's prepare for those who God's going to bring us by taking better care of each other. I think this is ground zero for that. He's poured out his blood to save every member of our church and many who aren't official members here who are, who are coming into our community. He's poured out his blood unto death for that. How can we not? find great motivation in that for being a church full of members who love and care and watch over one another. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that in the midst of coronavirus social isolation, you have spoken to us through your word about the need to not neglect one another. Lord, please help us to be a church, to be a people that grabs each other by the hand of our hearts, whether it's physically or spiritually, and helps each other towards Jesus. God, thank you for giving us the dignity and the grace and the honor of being part of your redemptive work. Thank you that you don't just work directly from heaven to people in isolation, but you have sovereignly ordained that your grace will work through each other. Help us, God. Help us to exhort one another, to know what that means, to encourage one another, to know how to do that with skill and with tenderness. Help us, Lord, to do this. Give us power and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.